Florida Frontiers, the weekly radio magazine of the Florida Historical Society, is made possible in part by the Florida Humanities Council and the National Endowment for the Humanities. It's also made possible in part by the Jesse Ball DuPont Fund and by the Brevard County Board of Commissioners through the Brevard Cultural Alliance, Incorporated. This is Florida Frontiers, the weekly radio magazine of the Florida Historical Society, on the web at myfloridahistory.org. I'm Ben Broatmarkle, and coming up on this week's program, medical practices in Florida more than 7,000 years ago. There was a woman in her 50s who had a possible cancerous lesion of her skull. Well, she was found with 127 grape seeds in her abdominal region. Now, grape has a natural pain relief property, so had if this was a cancerous lesion that could have been spread throughout her body, she could have been using these grape seeds as a kind of an end-of-life pain relief. We'll visit the Arctic architecture of Frank Lloyd Wright at Florida Southern College. I started to get interested in architecture in general and in Frank Lloyd Wright in particular and I found out that I was about an hour away from the world's largest collection of Frank Lloyd Wright buildings. Some fishing tales from South Florida and much more ahead on Florida Frontiers. In 1982, a backhoe operator working in Titusville near the intersection of I-95 and State Road 50 accidentally uncovered what would later be recognized as one of the most important archaeological discoveries in the world. Three years of fieldwork uncovered an ancient cemetery in the form of a mortuary pond, a phenomenon unique to Florida. Between 7,000 and 8,000 years ago, the people of Windover ritualistically buried their dead by wrapping them in the oldest woven fabric found in North America and submerging the bodies in a peat bog. The anaerobic environment allowed for the amazing preservation of 168 skeletons and even soft tissue, including 91 skulls with brain matter inside. While we will probably never know the religious beliefs that prompted these ancient ritualistic burials, some interesting conclusions about medical practices among the Windover people are now being made. Dr. Rachel Wenz is East Central Region Director of the Florida Public Archaeology Network. We'll start with the plants because the plants uh, form a really large part of looking at potential medicine. Um, the bodies within the Windover Pond, many of them were so well preserved that they actually had small clusters of seeds in their bellies, what we believe were gut contents at the time of death. There were about four individuals that produced seed caches within the belly. There were other individuals who had seed caches in other parts, like up in the chest area, that might have shifted up. But we know that there are just a few of those that really look like these were the last meals of these individuals. There were over 30 different types of plants identified from the Windover remains associated with the bodies. Well, 19 of these have known medicinal purposes. So I started looking at these plants and looking at those that were used for medicine. My dissertation research was an analysis of all the different types of pathologies at Windover, looking at dental health, infection, arthritis, traumatic injury, 
So what I did in conjunction with Dr. Michelle Williams, who's a regional director in the southeastern region of FPAN, we started combining what these plants are used for medicinally versus the pathologies that were identified at Windover. And, and what we were able to do was say, perhaps they were using these different types of medicinal plants for these purposes. We kind of married the two sets of data. And it was really interesting because some of the individuals that had seed caches had some pretty extensive pathology at the time of death. There was a woman in her 50s who had a possible cancerous lesion of her skull. Well, she was found with 127 grape seeds in her abdominal region. Now, grape has a natural pain relief property, so had if this was a cancerous lesion that could have been spread throughout her body, she could have been using these grape seeds as a kind of an end-of-life pain relief. Um, we also see this in a woman who was in her 60s who had a really fused spine. And when I say fused spine, the bodies of her vertebra of her spinal column were actually had grown together so she had a severe lack of mobility she couldn't bend over to pick things up she couldn't twist side to side well she had a large number of elderberry seeds in her belly which are also used as pain relief but they're also used as an anti-rheumatic meaning they help fight against the symptoms of arthritis. So she could have been actually using those elderberry seeds to help uh, the symptoms of her arthritis that she suffered from her spine. For 13 years, Wentz worked as a firefighter paramedic in Orlando before getting her PhD at Florida State University, specializing in bioarchaeology. Dr. Wentz has been studying the remarkably well-preserved plants and humans of Windover. She says that reasonable assumptions about ancient medical practices in Florida can be made by looking at the bones of the Windover people. Well, actually, my first hint at possible medicine at Windover came from actually looking at fracture patterns. This was my uh, master's thesis research, was analyzing the fractures that the people at Windover sustained throughout their lifetime. And they had a lot of them. You can imagine um, their life was very active, so very active lifestyles are usually accompanied by a lot of broken bones. Um, but what I noticed when I started looking at all of these broken bones was the fact that many of them were very well aligned, meaning they weren't, they didn't have a lot of disfigurement following their fractures. So that was my first hint at, you know, I bet they were probably splinting their broken bones. It doesn't take a lot of um, extensive medical knowledge to know that when you fracture, say, your forearm, um, it hurts a lot less if you keep that arm still and if you hold it next to your body. So what they were perhaps doing was using sticks and uh, to secure it to the body to keep that bone from moving because the movement causes pain. A lack of movement allows it to heal properly. So you have a lot less disfigurement and um, deformity following the injury. We also have indications of um, their material culture that may have hinted at splinting. We know that they were working wood because we found chiseled wooden stakes associated with the burials. They also could have been uh, making slings to hold broken arms or broken shoulders because we found textiles associated with the burials. The bodies were wrapped in these textiles, so they could have easily used some of these textiles to produce slings as well. The bones of the Windover people allow researchers like Dr. Wentz to observe patterns in arthritis and other diseases in this population that's more than 7,000 years old.
In addition to the possible splinting of fractures, the bones indicate other long-term medical practices at Windover. Probably the most vivid example is a young, probable male, we think he was around 17 years old, who had pretty extensive spina bifida of the lower spine. Now, spina bifida affects if you're visualizing the, the, someone from behind and you look at their back. At the base of their spine, what happens with spina bifida is during embryological development, that spine, the spinal bones fail to fuse over the spinal cord. Well, it's your spine that protects the spinal cord. So when those bones don't fuse properly over it, it leaves the spinal cord exposed. His case was not a severe form of spina bifida, but he had a lot of associated signs and symptoms with it. Um, it looked like he was probably paralyzed from the waist down. His leg bones are really emaciated and very withered away, so he probably wasn't walking. So someone would have had to carry him from site to site for the 17 years he lived. He also had extensive infection throughout his body, especially in his lower legs. In fact, in his left leg, he had such extensive infection in that lower leg that it appears he lost his left foot sometime in life. And there may have been someone who was kind of debriding it, removing this sloughing tissue from his foot because it appears to have been amputated. There was no ankle or foot bones recovered in an otherwise pretty intact skeleton. So it appears that, um, you know, the lack of circulation in that lower leg eventually led to kind of the wasting and sloughing of that left foot. So again, we see care and treatment afforded this individual. The Windover Archaeology Dig is one of only five mortuary ponds discovered in the world, and all of those are in Florida. The remarkable preservation of the burial sites is what makes Windover so unique. Windover is also noteworthy since the remains there indicate a high level of probable medical practices among this prehistoric population. We have extensive evidence of medicine in the archaeological record, primarily in the historic archaeological records. We have um, written documents indicating early medicinal practices. We see among the Egyptian hieroglyphs, among the Maya, Mayan hieroglyphs, we see um, practices that appear to be medicinal in nature, whether they're the administration of an enema or the um, using of, of bird bone tubes, which we also found at Windover. So the material culture at Windover also hints. We found uh, four of these carved bird bone tubes, which are incised tubes that are cut from a long bone of a bird, say a bird leg. And those have been known throughout the world to be used in healing practices. A shaman or healer uses a tube to place it against the sick, per sick person's skin and suck you know, in theory, the the uh, infirmity from the individual. They're also used to blow as kind of snuff blowing tubes to administer um, tobacco, which is sometimes used in healing rituals, sometimes just used as a hallucinogen. So the fact that we find these bird bone tombs at Windover also kind of bespeaks that they may have been creating material culture to aid in these healing c ceremonies. In fact, some of the oldest bird bone tubes we find come from Shanidar, Iraq. They date to over 11,000 thousand years old. So who knows what they were using them for back then. But we do have a lot of this um, archaeological evidence for medicine in early prehistoric cultures. Dr. Rachel Wentz is director of the East Central Region of the Florida Public Archaeology Network. The FPAN East Central Region is hosted by the Florida Historical Society at the Library of Florida History in Cocoa.
This is Florida Frontiers, the weekly radio magazine of the Florida Historical Society. I'm Ben Broatmarkle. Visit us on the web at myfloridahistory.org to find out about upcoming events, shop for great books on Florida history and culture, listen to archived editions of this program, and much more. That's myfloridahistory.org. In 1513, Spanish explorer Juan Ponce de Leon landed on Florida's shore, beginning a cultural relationship between Spain and Florida that will be commemorated throughout the state on its 500th anniversary in 2013. This moment in Florida history features historian James Cusick. Floridians tend to connect Cuban-Americans with Miami, but Cubans have long played a role in Florida's history. In 1812, the governor of Spanish East Florida was Cuban-born Juan Jose de Estrada. He defended the town of St. Augustine against an attack by American troops out of Georgia at the beginning of the War of 1812. In a letter to his superiors, he wrote, quote, Rest assured, Senor Capitan General, that this place is in a state to make a vigorous resistance, and that in the event of the enemy possessing himself of it, that it will be only of its ruins, under which I shall be found buried. Estrada held off the invaders until relief troops and a new governor arrived from Havana. In 1815, he was promoted to the prestigious post of Sergeant Major of the Plaza of Havana. University of Florida historian James Cusick. This moment in Florida history was created and produced by the Florida Humanities Council with funds from the Florida Department of State Division of Cultural Affairs, commemorating 500 years of Spanish history and culture in Florida. This is Florida Frontiers, the weekly radio magazine of the Florida Historical Society. i tell you why I can't find you. Every time I go out to your place, you gone fishing. Ah, oh, you know. But there's a sign upon your door. Uh-huh. Gone fishing. I'm real gone, man. <laughs> you ain't working anymore. Could be. There's your hole out in the sun where you left a row half done. You claim that hoeing uh, ain't no fun. But I can prove it. You ain't got no ambition. Gone fishing by a shady, weighty pool. Shangri-La, really la. <laughs> I'm wishing I could be that kind of fool. Shall I twist your arm? I'd say no more work for mine. Welcome to the club. On my door I'd hang a sign. Gone fishing instead of just a wishing. That's Bing Crosby and Louis Armstrong from a 1951 recording. Janie Gould spoke recently with a man who's gone fishing from the same South Florida dock for the better part of a century. For most of his 91 years, Richard Milton Jones has lived along the historic Jungle Trail in Indian River County. His cottage, built in 1921, faces the Indian River on land that his grandfather homesteaded 125 years ago. His dock, Jones Pier, is a landmark too. Jones worked as a commercial fisherman, fishing guide, and citrus grower. Now he likes to relax on his porch, talking to folks who walk by from nearby gated communities. 
He has no shortage of stories about his life on the river, including his years as a guide. I never failed to bring a fish to the dock. Some days it was tough. Weather wasn't right, but you had to go anyway. What's the biggest fish? There was one cut off this dock, weighed 83 pounds, a big old black drum. Off this dock that's in eight feet of water, maybe? Six feet of water. I didn't catch the fish. A man fishing on the dock caught him. He weighed that much, and you could walk out on that dock at night, and they had a concert going. I got to shake the dock. The mating season, I think, is what it was. They'd come through here in schools going north. A lot of them weighed 50 pounds. And you had to have a blue claw crab. That's what they loved. In their throat, they had a crusher for oysters. They'd go to these oyster bars and pick up these oysters and take them down in here and then break up the shell, eat shell and all. That was in the throat of the drum? Yep. Mother Nature knew what she was doing. She did a pretty good job there, I think. I used to go over here around Hobart fishing for drum because there's a lot of oysters and shells over there. And I'd go over there early in the morning when there wasn't no wind. You see these old tails sticking up, waving like that. He was feeding on them oysters. I had a guy in the boat with me one day, and <laughs> he didn't know about that. And I seen one of these big tails sticking up, you know, probably a 50-pound fish. I was pulling the boat, so I pushed up there, and I said, I said, see that big fish out there? He said, hell, that ain't no fish. He was from Milwaukee. I said, well, I'll show you whether it's a fish or not. So I pushed the boat up on that fish, and when he left there, he almost turned that boat over. <laughs> Water was about that deep. About four feet deep. A lot of drum in here. Still is drums. I've never seen a big one lately. Are they good to eat? The young ones are, but them old big ones aren't. We use them fertilizer around citrus trees. That man brought his mother and father here one day. They wanted to catch one. They got three of them hooked on at one time, going every which way. Are they a fighting fish? They've got the power like a th- bulldozer, but they ain't fast. I've seen a lot of tackle taking on. In fact, I saw one reel took a part of one of them. From a drum? Yeah, a drum done that. Them old drums are big fish. I caught a 36-pound snoop in this river myself now. On a cane pole with a wire line off of that damn old Winter Beach Bridge. That's a uh, fighting fish. Oh, that snook's a sporting fish. A lot of people like something to eat, but I never did like a big one like that. We cut him up with an axe and put him out on grapefruit trees. <laughs> Fertilizer. What did it take to catch a 50-pound drum? A heavy, deep-sea rig. Did you ever get tired of eating fish? Eating it? It's one of my favorite foods. Mullet. Best damn fish in that river. You know why? He is a grass eater. And he's got a gizzard. He's got a liver. Like a bird. And them gizzards are really good. You boil them, put rice... Make a perlow. I always eat them for Christmas. <laughs> but boy, the mullet's gone. They're not here no more. Richard Milton Jones, 91, has lived away from Jungle Trail for only one four-year period. That was when he served overseas during the Second World War. Janie Gould from WQCS prepared that report. Folks won't find us now because Mr. Satch and Mr. Cross We gone fishing Instead of just a wishing Oh, yeah This is Florida Frontiers. 
The most famous architect in American history, Frank Lloyd Wright, is remembered today as much for his larger-than-life persona as for the innovative buildings he designed in places like Chicago, Pennsylvania, and the Arizona desert. Now, after many years of neglect, scholars are looking at a small Central Florida college that boasts the world's largest collection of Wright's work. As Bill Dudley reports, a book by a former Floridian may shed new light on Wright's relationship to the Sunshine State. Today, Dale Allen Geyer is Associate Professor of Architecture at Michigan's Lawrence Technological University. He says he first became interested in Frank Lloyd Wright and Florida Southern College while working as an attorney in Tampa. I started to get interested in architecture in general and in Frank Lloyd Wright in particular, and I found out that I was about an hour away from the world's largest collection of Frank Lloyd Wright buildings at Florida Southern College. So I started to come over. The more I saw, the more interested I got, and the more I wanted to know about it. But if you go through the literature, the Frank Lloyd Wright literature up until the early 90s, there's really not much at all on the college. The Florida Southern story began in the late 1930s when visionary president Lud Spivey convinced Frank Lloyd Wright to design what he called a great education temple on the lakeside campus of the small college near downtown Lakeland. Construction began during the war years using largely student labor. In all, Wright designed 18 buildings. Twelve were eventually built before the architect's death in 1959. Wright proposed a theme for the campus. He called it Child of the Sun, buildings emerging from the ground into the light of day. Covered walkways called Espenlods connect the buildings, which were laid out at odd angles to each other. At the time, colleges all featured quadrangles and courtyards and uh, if you've ever been to the University of Florida, for instance, it, it has a traditional design where you can stand in a courtyard and there's a nice orderly bunch of buildings around you. And it seems like he started that way, but then he changed and he introduces these diagonal angles. If you look at the plan, these 30 and 60 degrees diagonals, which uh, if you're new to architecture, it almost looks like the buildings are randomly placed in the landscape, but they're not. There's a different kind of order that he imposes. And that becomes the foundation for not only the campus plan, but the buildings, because he changes the footprint of the buildings, too, so that they're no longer just squares and rectangles. They start to echo these diagonals. In the center of the campus, the Annie Pfeiffer Chapel, among the first to be completed, is an extraordinary building for many reasons. It always was intended to be the centerpiece of the campus. There were only seven religious structures designed by Frank Lloyd Wright that were built in his lifetime, and Florida Southern has two of them the Pfeiffer Chapel and the Danforth Chapel. And so I think it's a rare opportunity to see his religious architecture and to see what his ideas become when he applies them to a religious building. The chapel's design is in sharp contrast to the ground-hugging houses and other buildings we associate with Frank Lloyd Wright. The height, the verticality of it, it's the only vertical structure that he designed on campus. And if you think back to traditional religious buildings, Christian buildings in particular, tend to have this verticality that they emphasize, whether it's a a kind of a colonial church with a tall spire or a Gothic cathedral. There's no grand entrance, which is a typical right move. There's no big front door that screams at you, this is where you go in. In fact, there are numerous entrances, and you pick one. And what happens is when you go in, you're in this little space, and it's kind of narrow, and you've just probably come out of the esplanade, which is just over your head. So you're kind of compressed. And then in Pfeiffer Chapel in particular, he includes these wonderful skylights, so that really the only way to see out of the building is to look up. And that, I think, is another aspect of religious design that he picked up from tradition but sort of personalized it. So you go from this area that's kind of compressed and tight to open, very open and very upward-looking space. And it's called compression and release. 
in architectural terms. In his new book, Frank Lloyd Wright's Florida Southern College, Dale Geyer looks at three ideals that informed much of Wright's design. One was his interest in nature, creating an architecture that responded to the site and its natural history. The walkways, I think, are the best example of that, the covered walkways, which for him, Florida meant being outdoors and enjoying the weather and the atmosphere and the sun, but also realizing that at times you want to get out of the sun or get out of the rain. So he created these walkways. Instead of you know one big building or a number of buildings right next to each other, he spread the campus out and created these covered walkways where you could get from one to another and enjoy outside, but also be a little bit protected. Another is the architect's lifelong commitment to education. His mother and his sister were teachers. His aunt ran a progressive school in Chicago, where Wright was involved in educational circles. Perhaps the most important idea is that architecture should reflect our democracy, our freedom, and individuality. One of his main projects over his life was to create an American architecture, something uniquely ours that didn't copy the Europeans in any way. And he felt that the way to do that in addition to introducing nature into design, was to create an architecture that reflected our democratic society. And for him, that meant individuality and freedom. And so in the key letter, when he sends the first campus drawings to uh, Lud Spivey, he includes a few lines in there where he talks about the freedom and the individuality of the plan and how the buildings, each individual building is unique and different from the others, but they're related to each other almost like a family resemblance, because they use the same materials and they're connected by these esplanades. So they're individual and different, but also unified. And he saw that as kind of a metaphor for a democratic society. In the letters and speeches Geyer studied, Wright often spoke of trying to find a Florida form. One of the projects that he was involved with throughout most of his life was to try to create a a modernist architecture that was regionally specific. And this was direct contrast to the contemporary European modernists who Uh, basically felt that you designed a building for function. And if you solved the problem, then that solution was apt no matter where the building was located. Uh, Wright thought that was garbage and that you had to pay attention to where the buildings were going to be built. And so in trying to search for this Florida form, the first thing he did was he sort of looked at Florida's heritage and he found none. There are some great speeches where he talks to women's clubs in Miami about, for instance, people down here have only built the way they built up north. He referred to Miami as a monkeyfied version of New York City. He, he chastised people in Florida saying, look what you have here. It's wonderful. You have, it's so different from anywhere else. You need an architecture that relates to that. And he didn't think there was any architectural tradition here. And so he took it upon himself to create a Florida form for, to model it for future generations. Strangely enough, until recently, this impressive body of Frank Lloyd Wright's work has remained largely overlooked by scholars. It was in a small town in the middle of Florida, and it wasn't a big client, and it wasn't a big money project. And so nobody really was looking at it during the time the campus was being built. And then after that, you know, the the scholarship on Wright tended to focus on the glory projects, the most famous ones like Falling Water. So... After we've been through those, you know, how many more books on falling water can you have? Uh, Historians started to look to other projects, and I'm kind of part of the second wave of looking over things that he's done that weren't so popular and weren't so important to the architectural world at the time, but I think that you can get a lot out of. He started to design the campus in 1938 when he was 71, so at a time when a lot of people are retiring and not really capable of, of doing much architecturally, he was going full steam. 
The book also focuses on the man behind the scenes, college president Lud Spivey, and his close relationship with the architect. This is by no means the last word on Florida Southern College, and I'm hoping it's only the first word on Lud Spivey, because he's really the the unknown player behind this design. It, it, I don't want to say that it was co-designed by Spivey and Wright, but Spivey had definite ideas, and I think he really um, prodded Wright to create something wonderful here. Architectural historian Dale Geyer. His book is Frank Lloyd Wright's Florida Southern College, published by University Press. For Florida Frontiers, I'm Bill Dudley. You've been listening to Florida Frontiers, the weekly radio magazine of the Florida Historical Society. Please join us again next week, and until then, find us on the web, on Facebook, and Twitter. Have a great week. I'm Ben Brookmarkle. Florida Frontiers, the weekly radio magazine of the Florida Historical Society, is made possible in part by the Florida Humanities Council and the National Endowment for the Humanities. It's also made possible in part by the Jesse Ball DuPont Fund and by the Brevard County Board of Commissioners through the Brevard Cultural Alliance, Incorporated.